ahead of time we don't usually do this at all not for intros no not for intros but we have to do it the outro is actually going to be recorded uh, right before just in case there's anything that needs to be added to it and uh, also in the outro daryl will be able to announce the competition yeah, exactly the competition winner. So you're not uh, going to find that out this moment who won two weeks ago but listen to the, all the way to the end of the show and it's an awesome show and you'll find out who won you are will be when this goes out in new zealand still or coming back uh i'm almost on my way back there we go yeah so, uh, hopefully got, in one piece. Yeah, hopefully not too cold. <laughs> Apparently, it's minus five there, and they've had forty centimeters of snow overnight. <laughs> Take your snug pack. Yeah, well, I think it would be a bit hot. I think it would be a bit hot, a bit big as well. I spoke to Joseph on the phone last night, and uh, he said, "I haven't got skis and I haven't got snowshoes, but I think I'm going to pack the crampons because if we get into an icy gully, I don't know if we'll get out again." <sighs> so I said, "Yes, good idea, Joseph." So. Everything is almost in order. Uh, we've got our whole heap of lenses sitting here on the desk in front of us that I need to pack. Uh, lots of waterproofing dry sacks have been ordered and arrived because that is key. Uh, one for organising, I've realised, on doing lots of lots of trips and adventures, but obviously secondly, to keep your stuff dry. Yeah, it's helpful. In fact, when I was in Nepal, what I did was I actually wrote on all my dry sacks. So I had like a socks one and a... That that makes your life easy. If yeah. you organize your bag, it actually feels better as it well. It feels great, yeah. Knowing where all your stuff is, because that is your house. It's your little it's domain. Like, it's like a turtle, isn't it? You carry your house <laughs> on your back and that's what it is. Yeah, so there is a certain satisfaction to knowing where all your stuff is. The only thing is, I'm not going to be using my own rucksack because it's too much stuff to take to the other side of the world. So I'm borrowing one of Joseph's it's dangerous, rucksacks. Dangerous, that. There. Dangerous. It is, but it's all my own stuff, but not going in my rucksack. But he does spend a lot of time in the mountains, yeah. so I trust that he has one that hasn't like got one strap broken or something. <laughs> um, we're going to kick off uh, with something quite exciting. Now this came to us. Uh, a few weeks ago now, when we were at the Northern Shooting Show, and a gentleman uh, came into our tent, uh, the, the big tent that we have with all of our kit in there to meet people, uh, called John Wood. And John is a podcast listener and has been for a very long time, but he is involved uh, with the Midland Black Rhino Conservancy and trying to raise raise funds to them. He was there with a friend of his uh, who's in the TA, and he had just actually just done a stint with them, yep. actually helping and, and training the patrols there. Now, the Midland Black Rhino Conservancy is based in Zimbabwe, and it's a group of farms. Uh, so I'm just trying to find the information that he sent me here so that I can get it um, correct for you. It's a group of farms that essentially joined together and took down all of their fences so that you could end up with this big conservancy. And they had a lot of rhino. Uh, but like much of Africa, their rhino have been poached relentlessly and uh, it costs a lot of money to basically protect the rhino which are left. And they have a team of, um, well, an anti-poaching unit, a whole team of, of trained anti-poaching anti, anti unit guys who live and breathe with the rhino, because essentially what they do is they follow the rhino around. Spend the night with them in that. Spend the night with them. Uh, so he was telling us this story, which was, uh, yeah, it's quite incredible that we've come to a stage in humanity where we're having to have humans with wildlife day and night to protect them from being poached. It's a sad state of affairs, but it's happening all around Africa. 
Um, but what uh, John has done is uh, they've been trying to raise some money for the Conservancy, uh, but for one p- particular thing that they're doing quite soon. Because the number of rhino they've got is very small, the gene pool is very small, and they want to swap out the male black rhino that they've got for another black rhino um, that's still in in the same country but in a different area. So they need to tranquilize it and then transport and swap these rhinos over so that they can both be introduced into new and fresh gene pools for the continuation of the species. So there's quite a cost uh, involved in this. So what they've uh, what John has done is he he got a whole bunch of people together uh, to donate a prize and he's run a raffle for it. Now the prize is uh, a one morning stalk, one evening stalk a one-night bed and breakfast at the Clacken B&B, and the whole carcass um, will, that you that you successfully shoot, if you do manage to, to shoot a deer, which hopefully you will, uh, will be butchered for you and sent to you, professionally butchered and sent to you. So what an awesome prize. In front of me, I've got an envelope that he sent up. I haven't so even looked the, at the, it yet. The competition is over. This yeah, is, it's this done. Is, yes. um, we've got all the entries in an envelope in front of us, uh, um, we are essentially live, well, kind of live, live right now, but it won't be live by the time the podcast goes out, going to dip in there and pull out our winner. Before we do that, um, he just wanted me to mention a thanks to people who have actually donated to be able to run this raffle, and that is the Clacken Inn, where you'll be staying, um, the St. John's Town of Del Rai, uh, Eden Valley Game, Alistair and Tatiana Elder of uh, Caramino's estate and himself, John Wood, of Hunting Experiences. Um, if, uh, oh yeah, one other bit of information before we do the exciting bit, which is find out who's won, is apart from this bit of money that they're raising, they're always looking for help. Uh, if you go and have a look, uh, if you, in fact, if you just go on YouTube and put in uh, Midland Black Rhino Conservancy, you'll find a, a video on there. Uh, go and watch that video and you will get to see the place and the kind of struggles that they have. The rangers there are always in need of kit. You know, Kit wears out, clothes wear out, boots wear out. So if you would like to donate kit of any description or even, you know, some... They're not talking new stuff. Yeah. They just want your second-hand clothes. If you've worn it for a season or your boots... Are... He was just saying this to us, actually, when he was in the tent. A lot of people, as their boots start to leak a bit... They change After them. a season two, you change them. But there it's dry. So those boots which are now letting a bit of water in throughout the season for you will see those guys through a year or two. Look, they can't buy boots for themselves. So the bottom line, they need to be given them. Yeah. Uh, so anything like that at all that you think you can spare or if you'd like to make a donation, uh, simply contact John Wood. And he said that I can give his mobile number out on air. So um, his mobile number is, get your pens ready. Zero seven eight three one eight three six nine zero eight. We'll put it in the description, and if you need to get hold of them, just email us, and yeah. we can send you the contact details. Podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. Um, it, very easy. We will we will respond. Wheels. And I think that's everything I need to mention. It's you know we we talk about anti poaching a lot. Uh, we've raised money for projects in Africa before. Well, you guys have our podcast listeners. So it was it was a privilege to be asked to do this. Uh, he wanted somebody impartial because we didn't even know about this project uh, at all before he walked so, into so our we, tent. So we don't know a single person in this envelope. No, uh, because we don't Darryl's know got about the competition. Right it's, it's in my hand. So uh, you're gonna you're gonna do the lucky. I'll, I'll give it. A give good it a wee shake. shake. I'll give it a wee shake. 
Not that that's going to help too much, but it means that one might protrude more than the others. There we go. Okay, here we okay. go. Okay, my hand's going in. I'm, I'm picking uh, middle to top of pile-ish. There we go. The cell's being mixed up, so... Ben Rigby. Number 26. There you go. There we go. Ben oh. Rigby, you are the lucky winner. And I think it's just worth saying thank you to every single person who... Uh, put in for this raffle. This is a big stack here. I've, I've stack just pulled out the rest of the stack, but there's a big stack here. Cause and it just shows you how many people care. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you're doing it because you might get something out of it for yourself, <laughs> yeah. but you know, in, in that, you're helping to support a great cause. So thank you very much to, to John Wood uh, for coming to us with us. Uh, well done, Ben Rigby, and thank you to everyone who entered. Now. I feel, I'm feeling good about that. I know, I know. That's, uh, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. It's, uh, we, you know, we're... Yeah, thanks for asking us. Yeah. We feel uh, privileged to be asked to do these kind of things. Uh, but I guess we need to move on to the show going. We, we will. Um, but by the way, the show I've not even listened to yet, so I'm going to edit the show. Um, but I know who's on it. Uh, but I couldn't make it because I was actually picking up my um, two beehives. They were empty. They didn't have bees in them. But I was picking up two uh, beehives at the, the time. Yeah. Uh, so thanks, David, for uh, sorting me out with the, the hives. I do actually explain this at the start because uh, much to Daryl's disgust, we spend about the first 15 minutes talking about bees <laughs> because I was explaining to Charles, uh, who's our guest, Charles Post, why my brother wasn't there because normally he would be and unfortunately we were trying to get it in the last before two I times I've not been there but no, first, you were the first I was first the first time but the, the podcast <laughs> didn't bloody record and this one we were trying to get a time because he's on the he's in the states and the times are difficult and we wanted to do it before I went to New Zealand so anyway it clashed with Daryl picking up his bees but it gave us a great intro uh, for the conversation, which was all about bees. It was a fascinating discussion. If you don't know who Charles Post is, go and check him out on Instagram. I think it's Charles underscore Post. I think it is, yeah. Uh, he also has Facebook. He puts a lot of good content on Instagram. And if you are a modern huntsman a reader, if you have purchased it, or you follow the modern huntsman, you probably will know who he is already because he was the guest editor of Volume 1, and I know that he is going to be um, an editor in Volume 2 as well. He's a fascinating guy. He's an ecologist to trade. He's an ecologist hunter who also surfs. He, he breaks the mold. And I think that makes him a super interesting person to speak to. Because you can't, and I say this in the podcast, you can't pigeonhole him. If you're somebody who has something against the concept of hunting and killing animals for food, how do you place him? Because he is on side with so many of the other messages that you probably believe in. So, uh, yeah, I think this is going to make people think this podcast. I hope so, and I'm looking forward to actually listening to it. I can't. I really can't make any comment on it because we're <laughs> no, recording can't. this ahead of time, which is really unusual. Uh, but uh, Byron said it was good. When I had a rough look at the file, I think it's almost two hours. It's quite a lengthy podcast. So um, yeah, you'll uh, you'll enjoy this one big time. We have uh, another competition uh, as well, another two competitions as we do, or have, as we have done for the last uh, two shows. Now, the first one is to win a set of Smith Optic shooting glasses. These are just straightforward, clear ballistic glasses. Um, I have two sets of these now, and I don't just use them for shooting because just the other day I was I couldn't find my really cheap cheap ass glasses that I probably bought from B&Q at some point in the past uh, and I was doing some grinding work on my vehicle 
Smith Optic glasses came out just fine. Save me getting shards of metal in my eye. It's a great thing to have, and if you are on the shooting range, or if you're actually reloading, that's another good reason to uh, wear safety glasses, especially during the priming process. If you want to win those, go and check out our social media. Uh, it'll be a social media post. I think what we'll do is we would like to see what you guys are up to, because we've not done one of those for a while. So you'll be asked to, to share a picture. In fact, uh, we for those people who don't use social and would like to submit via email, which some of you do, uh, we would like a picture of summer, because summer is in full swing now. Well, in in our, part, in our part of the world it is. Yeah, well, it's been thunderstorms down in England. No, I'm talking... We, oh, we you're talking the Southern we, Hemisphere. We've got a lot of people in the Southern Hemisphere. Okay, well, what this time of the year is to you, for us <laughs> in Scotland, especially the last couple of weeks, it's been summer. Late spring into summer, it's been beautiful weather. Uh, but, yeah, if you're in New Zealand or somewhere like that, it could very well be winter for you. So just share a picture of what you're up to, and uh, the one that tickles us the most will be the one that wins. Yep. Uh, but check out on social for uh, the social post on that, and you can just put your picture below. Yeah, well, I... Oh, there's, there's another there, competition. There, oh, we do, well, oh, yes, of course there is. Tickets to give away. Oh, yeah, more tickets. More tickets. We have been giving away a pair of tickets for the Scottish Game Fair. So this will be the third pair yes, now. third pair. Uh, last two shows we've been giving them away. Uh, we've had a really quite tremendous response. There's a lot of people who want to get their hands on a, a free pair of tickets. Hopefully that's because they're all intending on going anyway. Uh, I think we said this in the first show we gave these away, but it's a freaking awesome game fair. Yeah, just just if, even if you don't win tickets, just go. Yeah, it's a, it's a great family day out. Uh, and there's a lot of things going on. And we're going to be there as well, so you can come and speak to us and have a look at Modern Huntsman if you want to get your hands on a copy. We will have a number of copies at the Game Fair. I think we're going to have a stack of 25. So if it was anything like the Northern Shooting Show, that 25 will be sold on the first day. And probably not even all of the first day. All of the first day. <laughs> Northern Shooting Show, Saturday morning, they were all gone. All the copies we had. And we were taking pre-orders at the show after that. Uh, so that kind of shows you, especially when people get their hands on it, they they want to buy it. So if you are wanting Modern Huntsman and you're going to be at Schoon, make sure you get to our tent ASAP. Sharpish. Sharpish, because otherwise you will not get a copy. Well, on the day. You will get a copy, just probably a little bit after. Now, we are going to be situated... If you've been to the game fair before, we're at the opposite end from the entrance, essentially. So it's a parallel row to where Fisherman's Row is, out near where the archery is. There's, a, there's going to be kind of a, a new row there that didn't exist in previous years. So that's quite exciting. There's going to be a bit of a, a switch around to the way things normally are. So come and see us. But if you want to win those tickets, uh, there will be a social media post that goes out the same day as this podcast that is going to ask you to share or tag a friend or something like that. But if you don't use social please just email us because it's completely randomly selected in any case so we will add your name to the list of people. Yeah, if we don't have your name, can't add you to the list. No. And I think that is it. Cool. Well, if we've missed anything, then it will be at the end of the show. So you've got to stick around to the end of the show because there might be something important that's come about in the the, the two weeks. In fact, it'll be longer than that. It'll be almost three weeks. three weeks, the three weeks that there is between us recording this and the show going out. Uh, but I know I know for a fact that you're not going to be going anywhere because it's going to grab you, this podcast. Charles is a really interesting guy uh, and views things in a way that you know most people wouldn't view things. Enjoy the show. 
Charles, thank you very much for taking the time out today to join us on the Into the Wilderness podcast. My brother would normally be here with me um, to welcome you onto the show and to participate in what is, I'm sure, going to be a very informative discussion. But he left about 30 minutes ago to go and pick up some beehives. And I I stopped telling you that before I started recording because I know that that kind of thing would probably tickle you. He's just got into (laughs) bees and uh, lots of conversations about declines of bee numbers and issues with pollination so that is where he is going while we're recording this podcast that's awesome it's yeah bees are kind of one of those unsung heroes right like we get so focused on those megafauna the charismatic ones but everything kind of orbits around bees ability to do what they do it is it is it's actually really scary to think the consequences of something so small if just like that it wasn't there anymore Right. Yeah. No, it's it's crazy. I think it's those things that are kind of um, inconspicuous that that uh, we society so often glaze over, you know, but um, I guess just like water and air even, you know, it's stuff we take for granted um, and consume every day and consume every day. Yeah. And, you know, you think about air, people think of trees, but most breaths you take are a byproduct of the ocean, you know, of uh, respirating organisms in the ocean so it's uh yeah the bees that's that's awesome that's really cool and are, do you guys have a bit of an orchard or a place where you can just put them out there on the moorlands or what's what's the kind of context see now he would be a better person to talk about this if he was here but uh, <laughs> uh so we where we live and where our offices uh is kind of in the middle side middle of the countryside just behind us yeah, from where I'm sitting now is the start of the Highland Fault, which runs diagonally across Scotland and then and then north from where we are here uh, on the east coast. So we're quite lucky because there's a lot of um, there's a lot of variations in crops around here. So you can put it in different places throughout the year depending on what the farmers are growing. But because we're on near the Highland Fault, we're not that far away from the heather moors. Uh, so you can put them up on the moors there if you get permission, and uh, you can get beautiful heather honey, which I think is my brother's plan. After he <laughs> gets to grips with what he needs to do to look after his bees, like closer to home, because we we got a lot of trees around where we are, um, and a lot of uh, sort of um, set aside areas, so lots of wild grasses and plenty of places for them to gather pollen. But once he gets that, I think he's going to try and put a hive up on the on the hills so he can get some heather honey. That sounds awesome. Yeah, honey was. Honey was something that I started really paying attention to when I was in college. I used to, it was, it was weird. Like growing up, I didn't really have allergies, seasonal allergies. And then it was during, you know, the, my undergraduate years that I, I started developing a, a bit of an allergy and I started eating local honey, local Berkeley honey, and just okay. kind of incorporating that into my diet. And I think it, I think it helped. I mean, it's, I think it's something that's uh, been used for generations. Um, that's but, intriguing. Yeah, you know, just kind of exposes you in low levels to to the allergy, which is pollen, and uh, therefore gives your body a chance to become more familiar with it. So anyway, well, there you go. There's a potential tip if you if you suffer from which a lot of people do in this country suffer badly from hay fever. Try and find some local honey and see if it see if it works out. I know that. Uh, sorry, no. Carry on. What were you gonna? Oh no, no. Extend I was just I was just gonna say that you know the unfiltered. Um, honey is the best that kind of keeps mm. all that, all that uh, kind of natural material in the honey that's not super processed. I think it's the way to go. Yeah, I think that you're right. That that is the key. And the other thing, and this is kind of an extension. We touched on this a few podcasts ago. Was uh, my brother and I both watched a documentary on Netflix 
um, called Rotten. And one of the episodes is all about the amount of fake honey there is in the world. A lot wow. of sugar syrup produced from a lot from rice, sugar syrup produced mm. from rice out of China. Mm. Uh, and a lot of the honey that we're eating is not actually really honey, which is kind of a scary thought. That is, yeah. I love how this conversation, you know, if you'd asked me this morning what we were going to talk about, I didn't think honey was going to be the kickoff, but it's <laughs> we're so gonna poignant. We're going to get to the other stuff. <laughs> it's, well, it it's, so, it's such a great, it's such a great um, kind of place to start because, you know, I know you and I are both passionate about wildlife and conservation and some of these uh, kind of higher level questions, higher level on the on the food chain and being precise and you know, it's like we talked about a little bit before we started recording. It's these, the small kind of bits and pieces that are so often, you know, kind of missed. And and bees, you know, I was just talking with um, some of the guys at Sitka. You know, I, I work with them as a mm. conserv, you know, in their conservation program, which is which is definitely budding in in all the right ways. And we were kind of kicking around the idea of doing a a a, a, a story on bees because oh really. Without bees, we don't have anything, right? Um, I mean, bees are one of the key pollinators, as are flies and butterflies and birds and, and even small mammals like mice and, and lizards, depending on where you are. But um, pollinators, that's that's the ticket. Yeah, no, we actually, one of the things that kindled my brother's interest in, uh, in bees was uh, we actually got a commission to make a film about bees. Uh, and it was, but bees on the moorlands, so that the people could understand um, how the moorland management was really important to produce, uh, to produce for, for honey producers and to produce honey heather in particular. Um, so there is a film that's out there. I'll, I'll shoot you over the link that is specifically about. I mean, it's a very niche part of of the whole picture, but for Scotland, incredibly important, and it goes into the detail of. How uh, the rotational burning on the heather here, which I show, I took Tyler up to go and see, is such an integral part of of the bees being able to um, to, to pollinate and the essential part that they play in that ecosystem. That's so cool. Yeah, it's interesting because you know I was talking with Adam Foss yesterday, um, one of my best friends, a, a pretty uh, amazing, well-rounded guy who's also, uh, as we both know, a celebrated um, bow hunter. Um, but we were talking about this idea of of nature and what's natural. And when I think about bees, you know, I grew up in Northern California, and I, I'm fairly certain that every species, every native species of bee in California is a, is a ground nesting species. There might be some cavity nesting, but, but honeybees are actually from Europe. You know, it's a European honeybee. And it's kind of this interesting, um, I won't even call it a conundrum because we're, it's so integrated into, you know, the state, California, um, into their kind of natural history. Um, but we, we live in this time where, you know, much of the native bees, um, habitat's been lost, you know, due to plowing or agriculture development or, you know, suite of other, uh, human impacts, but we've become so reliant on, this non-native pollinator, which I think in a very simple way challenges this idea of uh, restoration. It challenges this idea of even conservation, right? Because they, by default, are competing with other pollinators. But again, you like, you know, go up in that hot air balloon and and go up a few hundred feet and kind of look at this from a bigger perspective um, and open the eyes a little bit further. And obviously we live in an incredibly 
you know, modified planet in, a, in an incredibly modified ecosystem. So it's, I always think about that because people talk about, you know, uh, nature or the West or, or, or anywhere or, or Scotland for that matter in this, from this place of pristine wilderness, you know? Um, but in fact, I think that, uh, the honeybee narrative and, and virtually any other contemporary narrative will tell you that we live in a time, you know, it's the Anthropocene. That's the epic we live in. It's a, it's a time defined by humans. So it's kind of this interesting, uh, vehicle to, I think, talk about kind of how, uh, how the planet's changed and how we've been incredibly good at modifying it and in many cases stewarding it with these kind of uh, unique tools like honeybees. Yeah, and and I think that the greater the realization of uh, just the general public, your average person on the street in terms of their impact and their consumption and a true realization of that impact, the better we will be to move forward into the future in a, in a positive manner because i mean that this kind of granular level discussion that we're having about bees a lot of and i to be fair i hadn't even really thought about what you're saying there because the same is true in scotland my brother's going to be so annoyed that he's not here for this conversation <laughs> and i only know that <clears throat> i only know this because of what he's told me while he's been learning about bees but none of the and the bees that they they have for commercial purposes up here in Scotland are actually Scottish honeybees because huh. the Scottish honeybees are far too aggressive, and huh. that you just you can't you can't tame them um, to work <laughs> with them. So they're and he would be able to tell you where the bees come from, and I, I can't unfortunately. But they are a lot of hybrid bees from different parts of the world is actually huh. what the commercial honeybees are here. So exactly what you've just said uh, is that. Yeah, they're, at a certain level, we're affecting the environment around us by the production of honey because we're introducing um, a, a competitive um, species which doesn't actually belong here. But most people would have never considered that, and certainly I hadn't before you brought it up on a, on a level of bees and honey. Well, it's two things come to mind. One is that the Scottish honeybees' uh, characteristics would probably closely tie into the Scottish... <laughs> the Scottish people? people's characteristics. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? When my brother told me that the first time, I said, well, yeah, that that's just like the Scots, and I can say that because I was born here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's funny. It's uh, not having been to Scotland, but having read a bit about uh, the people who've come from that part of the world. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of the Scottish honeybee, you know, uh, it's, you know, I think value often these days is, is a, you know value placed on a species is oftentimes thought of in terms of ecosystem service, but we have the ability to kind of pick and choose what uh, we choose to support, what we choose to introduce into a system and manage. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's kind of like white-tailed deer, or some of these, or turkey, right? Like they have a mm. service that humanity appreciates more so than a badger which I would argue offers a much greater ecosystem service to a landscape than a white-tailed deer. Um, but we, society, have this preference for white-tailed deer over badgers, and badgers are considered pests, as are you know, prairie dogs. And, um, but if you really think about like, the net gain of those animals on the ecosystem, prairie dogs and badgers are two of the most important organisms we have. Um, they obviously do, ha they do have... Uh, attributes that make, you know, a rancher or a farmer's life difficult. Um, but if you're in the business of growing soil, which 
I think many uh, stewardship-minded ranchers and farmers would say, you know, that's their business. You know, a prairie dog and a badger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and they're and those are those two animals are such great. Um, they're such an important you know, kind of part of that equation, you know, of healthy Is that just the which... way that they recycle recycle soil? Is that why? Exactly. Yeah. Aerating, basically creating um, complexity in the, in the soil horizons, you know, through their burrowing and through bringing, you know, prey or, or, or vegetative material into the, into their burrows. And um, yeah, just creating this kind of complex ecosystem underground, you know, generally, the more complex a landscape, the more biodiverse a landscape, and therefore, uh, you know, just more life, more functioning at a higher level. Um, so yeah, it's. They're, are you, they're are ba- I'm I'm not actually sure what your badgers look like. I've never t- taken the time, and, and not having been to North America myself, but I imagine they have similar characteristics to a European badger. Yeah, I would I would assume so. Um, ours are in terms of the way they look. You know, they're black with with a white stripe and okay uh, quite that's a compact. good start that's yeah <laughs> that sounds familiar yeah but they're cool i you know i've i've probably seen four or five badgers in my life but i would much rather go and observe a badger than you know a lot of other animals they're just such kind of curious creatures and so well adapted for their life underground um mm. but you get well uh, you're going to be envious of this because i think i've probably seen about 150 to 200 <laughs> And they, yeah, they must love the moorlands and kind of that that ecosystem. Yeah, most of the ones that I've seen have been down in the southwest of Scotland, huh. uh, which is kind of rolling hill. Uh, I guess the the soil, actual soil structure, they're probably uh, they probably quite like, and and the, the amount of food there, so it's a little bit less um, cultivated and agricultural than the east coast. Uh, but I, up until the point, this was a couple of years ago. I had barely seen any badgers. Sometimes when I'd been out at night with a lamp, with a spotlight, I'd seen the odd badger sort of bumbling across a field. But I hadn't seen that many in my life. And about five or six years ago, I was there. And I literally saw maybe 30 or 40 badgers in the space of um, a 24-hour period. It was unbelievable. Wow. And, and walking in the daylight, like in the evening, walking no up to them. Yeah, just we were out, um, we were out hunting foxes, actually. Uh, with a rifle, and so you're, you know, you're sneaking and you're quiet and you're watching the wind, and so in the, in exactly the same kind of terrain and environment that you would find badgers, and that's how we were able to walk up to them so closely. But yeah, they are fascinating to watch. Although in this country we have uh, had rather controversially a number of quite well documented badger culls. They're not a species that you can hunt normally; they're prote- completely protected. Um, but they have had badger culls in certain parts of the country because of the way that they spread TB to cattle. Is that something huh. that you've had in the States or not? You know, I'm not familiar with, with that um, in particular, but I do know badgers in many states are considered pests. So okay. there are pretty lenient um, rules that influence how and when they're culled. Um, but I think generally, you know, at least here in Montana, um, to my understanding, you can trap and kill badgers as you see fit on private land. Um, so that's interesting because yeah. in Europe, in Europe, it's uh, I think in most countries there are seasons for it, but it, it is a legitimate quarry species. But for my entire life, they've been they've been protected uh, in 
the UK, and I should really know this, but I would assume that it was because of over-persecution historically, uh, where numbers got to rather low levels, but they've, they've certainly back to, to very buoyant populations now. Um, yeah. Charles, the, the, one of the things that I, I we should have got into right at the start, because I want to give a little bit of context about the, the nature of the things that you're saying um, carry weight for a very good reason. So before we get deeper, deeper into <laughs> down the this, hole. I, I, yeah, de- I was going to say down the rabbit hole. I was, <laughs> it's, it's a phrase that I tend to use too much, <laughs> but you said it. There you go. Before we get deeper down the rabbit hole, um, I want to paint a picture for our listeners of your background and essentially the, who you are, because I think it's really important, especially with the kind of discussions that we're, we've been having and that we're, we're going to be having throughout the podcast, the, the, the nature of the things that you're saying and the way that you're approaching it, there's a very good reason for that, and, and that's because of your background. So, yeah, tell us that backstory. Yeah, no, um, let's see. I grew up in Northern California, um, so just about an hour north of San Francisco, um, in a pretty small town, kind of at the confluence of the redwood forests and the kind of oak woodlands. So we got some fog, we got some rain, but a little bit to our our west, we had some kind of savanna like ecosystems. Uh, so it was it was an awesome place to grow up. You know, my dad was a board member of California Trout, which is a conservation group uh, we have over there that specializes in wild trout and wild trout habitat. Um, he had a fly fishing business. Um, so he taught my brother and I and, and my sister who loved fishing, um, to fish and we grew up hunting. Um, and you know, his grandfather was a, was a forester for the government. And, and so that kind of, um, that was a big part of a big part of our life. And my grandmother, she was an avid bird watcher and she loved to fish as well. So that was kind of just what we grew up doing was being outside. Um, that was, you know, I think the, the first real passion of my life was really just kind of poking around the woods, um, with a fishing rod or walking the fields, with my dad with a shotgun. And, um, you know, I think that was something that, that kind of primed me for the next steps, uh, which, quickly moved into the direction of, uh, of science. And it was in high school that I took my first kind of proper environmental studies course, uh, that touched on ecology and, and biology. And, uh, it was then that I, I think started to connect the dots and, and realize that it was a field that had a, f- a potential future. And it was a field that would and could keep me outside, which was, which were things that, you know, at the time I was, I was pretty, uh, pretty stoked on. And, and it just, it felt fulfilling. I was curious um, and excited about kind of pursuing that further. Uh, fast forward a few years, I did my undergraduate deg- uh, work at UC Berkeley, um, studying mostly freshwater ecology. I spent a lot of time uh, studying salmonids, so like our Pacific salmon um, out on the West Coast, and had a chance to kind of dabble in a few other projects, um, that, that touched on, you know, wildlife ecology, um, things of that nature. And then following, uh, my completion of undergraduate, I was hired by the university, uh, by UC Berkeley to work, um, for a woman who became my graduate school advisor, a a professor by the name of Dr. Mary Powers. She's a, just a fantastic human. Um, certainly my, my probably most influential mentor, um, and she gave me a pretty, um, awesome opportunity to, 
work at a research station uh, up in Northern California, kind of in the Humboldt area. Where all th- we have those huge redwood trees. It's it's kind of the um, close to the southern southern edge of our ancient redwood forest, where we still have those those giant old growths that are you know a thousand plus years old, and just these massive trees. Um, you know, in these watersheds that are very wild, uh, you know, water so clean that you can literally swim in the creeks and just drink the water, which is, you know, pretty rare in North America at this point. Um, so I was afforded this opportunity to be up there in the field for, you know, three years working on a suite of projects that spanned ecology, you know, ranging from the the ecology of these old growth redwood trees. And I was able to climb these massive trees and study, uh, you know, their, their leaves and how they process water. What um, a privilege. And it was, yeah, that was, that was an experience I'll never forget. Um, just climbing those trees and spending so much time up in their, their crown and the, and the kind of canopy uh, ecosystem that they have, especially those older trees. Um, but everything from, from the trees to th- these giant salamanders we have to the invertebrates and spiders and, songbirds, uh, you know, the salmon, different fish species. So it was really nice because, you know, people, young scientists reach out to me all the time and ask, you know, could I lend some advice? And what I always say is dabble, you know, have a chance to really experience the ecosystem because I think uh, what many people would say is that it's so important to find something in your life that is truly fulfilling, that scratches that itch of curiosity and, um, and hopefully puts you down a path that's that uh, that you're excited about, but also kind of keeps you uh, intrigued and inspired. And, and that those years in the field certainly did that. You know, I was exposed to what became uh, the focal point of my graduate work, which is this bird called the American Dipper. You have uh, a similar... We've got um, a European sp- Dipper, yeah. Exactly, yeah, Sinkless Sinkless, <laughs> which is what you guys have. And actually, a lot of the papers that I, you know, grew up reading were on your dipper. A lot of a lot of the early research was done in the UK. Um, but I found this bird, and it was just this kind of, like, serendipitous moment. Uh, my uh, advisor and I were walking down the river, and we watched this bird eating uh, these big caddisflies that make these their, their homes out of – they use silk – and they make their homes out of the little stones, and they create this case. And they're we called have them an armored... here as well. Yeah, ex- yeah, and it's Dicosmicus, uh, which is <laughs> which is the the Latin species name. But they're kind of this curious bug, and this dipper was eating them, and that kind of planted this question that that kind of drove my graduate work. But uh, I ended up spending three more years at UC Berkeley um, it, with Dr. Mary Power, and and finished my master's degree in 2015. Um, and it was then that I kind of started thinking about hunting and kind of the nexus of hunting and ecology and stewardship. Um, a guy that I taught with in graduate school was a forester and a, and a you know avid hunter. So we would we taught biology, field biology, to undergraduates uh, while we were in graduate school, and um, he and I just spent a bunch of time together, and we ended up spending quite a uh, quite a bit of time out hunting. And, you know, I think our conversations out, um, you know, out in the field kind of planted the seed that, you know, if done intentionally, hunting can be this really interesting tool for conservation, this tool for population management of certain species and and uh, and that there was room and uh, I think a, a need for these bridges to be 
made between the scientific community and the hunting community and, and also generally the scientific community and the general public. You know, scientists are often um, very focused on kind of their lexicon of words and their currency, which is generally the publication of peer-reviewed papers. Um, but I believe that there is a gap, you know, between their work and their language and the material and information that gets disseminated out to the public. So that's kind of been the the driver for my shift from academia um, in a life as a scientist to this kind of I don't even know what I do, but <laughs> but communicating. <laughs> Try and define it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Story, you know, it's, it's ha- storytelling scientist, all round cool guy who likes to adventure and explore. I, I can't quite pigeonhole you, but I think that's awesome. The fact that you can't. I was explaining to somebody just the other day. So I, I've got. Uh, I think it was actually could have even been my dad. Um, he said, "Who you got coming on the podcast soon?" And so I was telling him about uh, some, of the, some of the people coming up, you being one of them, and I was trying to explain like who you were to him. And uh, I was saying that I think one of the great things is that if you're having a conversation with somebody, you can't really be pigeonholed. You know, you're not just a hunter. You're not just an ecologist. You're not just one thing. And I think for, especially in the, sort of the public arena, which generally speaking is quite uh, on guard when it comes to anything relating to the hunting of a species it would put them off it would put their take their guard down because you're not what they would see as, as typical and i think that's massively to your advantage in the kind of storytelling and narrative that you're trying to get across yeah no it's, it's an interesting point and one that i talked about yesterday with adam foss and 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 that is you know that on paper i'm a liberally trained ecologist greenie from Northern California <laughs> who was vegan for a year in, in college and has, you know, grown my own vegetables and lived on an orchard and um, done a lot of things that many people would pay as, as pretty far left. But, you know, I grew up in a household where hunting was uh, appreciated. You know, my dad growing up in Virginia, um, you know, he exposed me to a lot of <clears throat> ways of thinking. And, you know, I also, I live in Montana. I work with hunting brands as a content creator. I make films um, for them. You know, Ben Masters, uh, an amazing filmmaker, one of my best friends. And Adam and I just shot a film for Sitka and Yeti that uh, will be out here hopefully in the next few months. Oh, great. Um, so, I, yeah, I think I've uh, kind of unintentionally have ended up with one foot in each of these worlds Um kind of straddling the left and the right. Um, but yeah, it is, f- it's, it's fun to kind of be in that liminal space. Um, but when I think about what anchors me, it, it truly is ecology. You know, everything I do and the perspectives that, that I, the wildlife. Yeah. Ex- exactly. comes back to my passion for ecosystems and wildlife. And, and frankly, besides my fiance and family and friends, you know, <laughs> that's kind of all that matters, uh, in my eyes is, is kind of, um, yeah, the the I I am totally obsessed and passionate about ecosystems and learning more about them and how they change and and increasingly how we humans kind of fit into that whole equation. So it's it's fun to be uh to kind of have so many hats to wear because I feel like I'm constantly 
learning and I, I would say I'm a master of none and kind of intrigued by a lot of things. Um, so it's, yeah, one, it's of the, <laughs> one of the things that um, I and I, I know that you'll be uh, very aware of the gentleman I'm about to, to mention, uh, but one of the things that Shane Mahoney often talks about uh, is something I, I borrowed and credited him uh, justifiably so in a speech that I gave just two Fridays ago. Uh, is that whatever we do going forward, and his phrase is, the wildlife must come first. And it very much feels to me like from this sort of conversation that we've had in the short period already, that seems to be at the center of a lot of what the work is that you do and and feel. Absolutely. You know, I think it's it goes back to the bees, right? We have mm. to think long and hard about what we choose to protect and what f- what service that protected species or place affords the species and that coexist with it or these or the places the landscapes the ecosystems that are adjacent to it right and that's like speaks to the importance of wildlife corridors it speaks to the importance of this patchwork of protected land whether it's public and private and having those those areas of synergy and collaboration so that we can have these wild matri- matrices that matrices that that exist um eo wilson's half earth hypo- hypothesis you know in his eyes the, the famous um, you know, Harvard evolutionary biologist, probably the most famous scientist alive today, um, he would argue that we need to set aside half of the earth for biodiversity conservation if we want to continue thriving as a species. And I think, um, you know, we society have placed values on plants and animals and landscapes. And some of those values, I think, come from a, from a very uh, kind of calculated place but I think honeybees are are a species that could have more value placed in them by society. Worms, soil, you know, topsoil. Like we need topsoil. We need these farmers of healthy soil, these decomposers. We need bees and pollinators and flies. You know, one of the things that Mary, my advisor in graduate school, taught me is that different colors of flowers correlate to different types of pollinators. Generally, you have your red flowers that have, um, you know, they attract things like hummingbirds. You have white flowers, which generally attract flies. You have yellow flowers that generally attract bees. And there is a suite of pollinators out there, like I mentioned earlier, lizards and mice among them, monkeys. um, So many different species have a role in pollination and pollination, as we know, leads to the growth of fruit and generally, you know, the, the plant. Yeah, the <laughs> yeah. plant kingdom, which we obviously rely on in, in, a, in a million different ways. Um, so while it's important to talk about, you know, elk conservation, a, a, a trophy bull is a function of a healthy ecosystem. You know, and that ecosystem also houses predators and houses plants and those plants need soil and that ecosystem needs healthy watersheds with a natural flow regime. And there's just this cascading uh, kind of effect of ecosystem wide conservation as opposed to putting all of our eggs in one basket and saying, well, we just need to focus on, um, you know, this one species or this one aspect of the ecosystem. But in fact, you know what I would 
you know, suggest is that we kind of take a step back and think about the entire equation because mm. um, that's that's what ecosystems work and we're a part of them. I think it's it's often missed in a lot of the conversations that uh, we have today, especially in a sort of a public arena, because it's very easy for people to get uh, animated and enthused by a certain species. We have here in this country, we've had um, some test populations and then actually some illegal reintroductions of beavers, but they've now established what I think will be fairly permanent populations. And they're talking about uh, reintroducing uh, links at some point. But what I always feel is really missing from those conversations is really what we should be focusing on, which is a- an ecosystem uh, level approach to management and getting that in a state where it can sustain these populations right up through the hierarchy. We seem to almost look at it the wrong way around, I, I often feel. Yeah, and I think a lot of... Um you know, there is an, an element of conservation and an element of those kind of more public efforts like reintroductions that kind of uh, pluck the heartstrings of the public. You know, people think of uh, ecosystems through the lens of charismatic megafauna often. Um, you know, wolves, pandas, whales, you know, penguins, these kind of totems of a place, polar bears. Um, and, you know, while it's important to think about those places as ecosystems instead of singular species, I do think there's a value in the kind of in identifying the innate uh, kind of draw and attraction these charismatic species like redwood trees and 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 lynx have. Right, like we need people's focus and attention to be cast towards these places. And it's a much easier sell to put a lynx on, uh, you know, uh, the thumbnail for a film or on a T-shirt or, or in the news and, and captivate people through that symbol than it is to talk about honeybees or, or lichen. microbiology or something. Yeah, <laughs> you know, or a frog even, which, you know, yeah. obviously everything has its, has its function and role. But, um, you know, it's uh, – it's it, it boils down to storytelling, right? Like conservation today hinges on the potential uh, that storytelling affords conservation. Um, you know, good stories tend to attract attention, which in turn translates to a groundswell of positive energy. Um, so, yeah, it's I think to be a good scientist or a good conservationist, you know, y- you need to think about storytelling and kind of symbolism. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that. And obviously, it's something that you're embracing. And um, I, I wasn't aware of your your friend Ben Masters until I started to read your stuff, which kind of links up with his. I'm so pleased that I have uh, had my attention drawn towards some of his work because I, I'm really fascinated by some of the projects he's also been involved in from a storytelling perspective. I, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, and he, you know, <laughs> one of the things that he always talks about uh, – is this idea of preaching the gospel of conservation. But when, for those listening, when you say that in your head, say it in a, in a Texan accent, kind of a low <laughs> tone. Um, and that's Ben, you know, and it's, it's such a, it's such a poignant um, statement because, you know, he, he truly embodies that. And, and I would like to say, or think that I do as well, which is that, you know, conservation being somebody who identifies 
with conservation truly ties into this this lifetime of work you know and and i i was writing about it the other day we live in this economy of instant gratification we live in a time where people are are often i don't know if they're looking for or maybe it's just the era we live in but there's this idea that you put something out there into the world by way of social media or Vimeo or YouTube or whatever. And, and within seconds you can be, uh, you can be praised, you can be celebrated. There's this kind of this quick turnaround. But when we think about conservation we think about ecology, you know, the most informative data sets we have in science are oftentimes spanning decades spanning 50 years, you know, that's where we have the 2020 vision to really understand how systems change. Because as we know, ecosystems march along slowly. These changes happen over time. And conservation success happens over time. You know, we can put a species in the endangered species list. We can set aside land for conservation with certain goals in mind. But those successes are generally and often realized over the course of years. So when Ben says, I'm preaching the gospel of conservation, you know, and I, th- I think about my work and what I want to leave behind, you know, I think we and, and others in this community of, of conserva- conservation-minded folks are really looking at this as like a lifetime contribution, a lifetime of work. Um, and it's... It's cool. It kind of grounds you, right? It like anchors you to this intention. Um, well, it has, to be, de- has, has to be that. dedicated, don't you? It's not a, like you say, it's not an instant thing. You genuinely have to be dedicated for the long term to actually make a difference. Absolutely. And, you know, I think about my, my life now, which is, you know, it's like a dream, really, but it, it it's leaning on, you know, 10 years. Most of my adult life, I spent either in a library reading science papers. Um, or in the field, living in a tent, just completely immersed in these ecosystems. Um, you know, my college and in, in graduate school years, all I did was study. You know, f- that that was it. Um, you know, I, I surfed for sure to like keep the <laughs> keep the body you know moving and working, but um, and spend a lot of time outside doing you know fun things. But fo- singularly focused on, on those studies and. Um, you know, ecosystems are complex. And I think one of the great things about those years is that it taught me that we don't know that much and that every ecosystem is different and that they are all constantly changing. So when people talk about ecosystems and how we should um, interpret, say, wolf populations, you know, I live in Montana, wolf hunting's legal, grizzly bear hunting might be legal in the near future. You know, one of the things that I, I bring up in conversation with different folks is that every pack is different because every pack lives in a different ecosystem with inherently different landscape level uses, challenges, threats, dynamics. Um, so while we can say, you know, ecosystem A is just like ecosystem B because wolves live in both, it's just not the case. Um you know, Texas is a completely different place than Montana and Montana and Colorado are inherently different. You know, one of the s- simple differences is that Colorado doesn't have grizzly bears or wolves and Montana does. And that's 
significant from an ecosystem perspective. Um, so it's a uh, complex it's a complex issue with a lot of moving parts. Totally, and we play and we play a role in most of it, whether we like it or not. Yeah, and you know, and in science we have this thing called the ninety five percent confidence interval. And when we talk about when scientists talk about numbers or certainty, you know, we say things with a certainty that is correlated to this ninety five percent confidence interval. Generally, depending on which you know uh, type of math you're using, but what it's saying is that. We, the scientific community, are allowing ourselves a 5% chance. 5% of the time, we're going to be wrong. 5% of the time, there's going to be an unknown factor that we can't foresee. And I love that because it, it, there's this inherent uh, question mark, this inherent place, that, this opportunity for us to be wrong. And I think that therein lies the drivers that propagate more science right science stands on the shoulders of of previous work and we're always trying to better understand the questions and the systems we're studying and i and and that's something that i that i try to inject into my work you know we don't have the answers we are just doing the best we can to understand what's happening while allowing room for improvement or or questioning our own work and, and redefining those perspectives. Mm. Going back to what you were saying about uh, how being dedicated to um, sort of a, a lifetime of conservation is something which you won't necessarily get immediate gratification over. It kind of makes me think about something that we've talked about a little bit uh, in in the recent past on this podcast and I, I did actually mention uh, again at the speech at the DNA Film Festival is that as hunters, generally speaking in the various different parts of our community that that encompasses it's become very popular to embrace that as a phrase I'm a hunter, therefore I'm a conservationist and all the million other kind of hashtags that exist along that sort of lines. And I've been quite guarded and uh, and somewhat critical um, publicly of it because I think that it's got to a stage now where, although it started with the best of intentions, that it is being used as a, a justification for what people do without truly being invested in it. Uh, and people are have got to the stage where they're saying it without really any kind of background and certainly I think is quite often the case zero participation in what would be considered conservation and I think it is quite naive for hunters to assume that just because they wield a rifle or um, a bow in, uh, in other parts of the world outside the UK and go and hunt something that that is necessarily enough to claim that you're partaking in conservation. I don't know how you feel about that, Charles. Yeah, you know, you bring up a great point, and it's it's one that um, I've thought about and talked a lot about recently uh, you know, with two kind of principal people. One is Tyler Sharp, who you mentioned earlier, who's the editor-in-chief of Modern Huntsman, which I feel so fortunate to be involved uh, with as an editor. Um you know, that's a topic that we're constantly chewing on with the Modern Huntsman team, trying to find ways to weave uh, stories that kind of are in, in in line with that 
topic into these issues and, and, and other content we're working on. Another person who I've talked with about uh, that question is Ben O'Brien. I was on his yeah, podcast course, yeah. maybe a month or two ago now, The Hunting Collective. And, you know, and, and that was an enlightening conversation because, you know, he brought up a pretty interesting point, which is that if hunters, at least in the States, I'm, I'm not super seasoned in all the different uh, regulations and kind of modes by which hunters can contribute to conservation in other parts of the world. But at least in the United States, we have these excise taxes and and other kind of involuntary uh, means by which hunters can put their dollars into a conservation pool of funding. Um, you know, and, and he said, well, if American hunters had an option to either opt in to those conservation pools or to opt out, would they still give the extra money to be put into that conservation pool. Because today, if you buy a hunting license and you buy ammo and and a gun, there are involuntary taxes that draw some of that money into conservation. So a lot of people today say, oh, well, I bought a license, I hunt, therefore I'm a conservationist. You know, one of the things that I brought up in Ben in my conversation is that that line of thought is identical to saying, because I'm an American citizen, I'm pro-infrastructure, I'm pro-bridges, I'm pro-median <laughs> uh, maintenance. You know, like your taxes are paying they for pay all that for stuff. That, yeah. But are, is that what you are? Are you pro-bridge you know, uh, bridge construction? Um, you know, in a similar vein of thought, people... I've had conversations with with people who are um, loud anti-hunters, people who are vegan. And while that choice can have tremendous beneficial impacts on the ecosystem, if you eat mindfully and know exactly where your food's coming from, yes, it can be a decision that's, I would say, has positive impacts. But a lot of people who decide not to eat meat for one reason or another. Maybe they just don't, their body doesn't uh, digest it well, or maybe they have some aversion to hunting, whatever it might be. You can still be a vegan and eat palm oil, which is in so much food. It's in makeup. It's in different lotions. It's it's ubiquitous throughout, you know, products sold at a supermarket. And much of the palm oil that is for sale today that is, in, that is, that is, consumed and purchased comes from the clear cutting of Southeast Asia of old growth rainforests that are being converted to palm oil plantations. So you might not eat an animal, but if palm oil is a part of your diet and part of your your kind of purchasing tendencies, you're certainly killing things. If you eat avocados, many avocados sold in the Western part of the United States come from Mexico. Much of those avocado orchards are grown in the mountain region where monarch butterflies overwinter. So just because you're eating avocados doesn't mean that you are, that you are, you know, you don't have blood on your hands, right? Like agriculture is one of the leading causes of species declines on earth. So back to the, you know, if you hunt or you're conservationist, I just think that all of it needs to be scrutinized you know, and and looked at through a microscope because re- the second you're born, you're having a negative impact on the earth. 
from the clothes you wear to your car to your cell phone and the rare earth minerals that have to be mined um, to make your cell phone work. You know, we're all having an impact. And I think there's something so important in really pausing and regardless of whether you hunt or not or you're a meat eater or a vegan or a vegetarian or a pescatarian, whatever it is, you know, if we can just sit there and say, what is our net impact and are we okay with that? That's where I think progress will be made and where fingers will stop being pointed at one another because hunters aren't perfect, vegans aren't perfect, and the people in between aren't perfect. You know, everybody has a suite of different realities and, and needs and resources. Uh, but really, I think progress is going to come from that just pausing and that introspection, you know, and that analysis of our own tendencies and needs. Yeah. And, and looking at uh, what we do, how we consume and what our impact is, honestly, uh, and I don't think we are often, especially within the hunting community, uh, and I can only really speak for that being kind of within it, but I imagine with the many communities, I don't think we're really honest with ourselves enough about what we do and our actions. And I'm not sure if it was you that said this, possibly on Ben's podcast or someone else, uh, but that's, whoever it was said, you know, one of the best things that we could have done for conservation was not be born in the first place because <laughs> yeah. we because we live on a planet where essentially there's too many people. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's an early thing to say. And I it remember is. I was talking with my fiance, you know, Rachel Pohl before that podcast. And it's something that she and I had talked about. And it's it's kind of this like morbid, <laughs> intense, intense kind of comment. But it's so true. Right. Like that's. You know, being born was the you know most negative thing that we ourselves will ever do to this planet, and I think it all boils back down to that intentional way of living through whatever mode or vehicle suits you best. Um, and I think hunting, you know, hunting can be this wonderful tool for conservation. It can be this wonderful vehicle for population management. It can be this 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 transformative experience to inspire a new generation of kids to fall in love with nature and wildlife. There is so much potential there. Like you said, hunting and conservation can be pushed a step further through opportunities like volunteering, trail restoration, um, you know, being involved in different types of conservation efforts, whether it's if you're a bighorn sheep hunter and you're working with your local bighorn society or wild sheep foundation, helping them with a capture or a collaring or donating, you know, conservation takes shape through all these different modes and means. And to truly be a conservationist, you know, I think there needs to be, uh, you know, a industry-wide, a community culture-wide push for people to do more than just buy a tag and therefore be a conservationist. And it's, I think it's up to us. I think it's up to the hunting community to place value on doing more, right? And just and identifying like, hey, you know, if you want to be a conservationist, you should really get out there and you should really participate with the conservation community and, and really put your time and energy and resources into some of these efforts that go beyond the purchase of a license or the purchasing of ammunition with the uh, you know excise taxes that's associated. Yeah, definitely, a hundred percent behind that. 
I, the way that I kind of view it is that if you want to truly be considered in that sort of realm of being involved in conservation, then you need to put in more than you are going to get back out of it. So it's a great starting point to be vested in something which you may have the opportunity to hunt as a as a quarry species, be that red grouse here in Scotland or be that bighorn sheep in North America. But I think to truly be invested in conservation um, as a as an aspect of our future it needs to be more than just that and you know that goes into uh, one great example which i always love is um the the planting of certain species of grass and flowers that's encouraged by um pheasants forever which yes there's a benefit to pheasants but their angle on that is going back to the very start of this podcast is for pollinators and that's what the mixes are for and i think that's fantastic and more push in that kind of direction where we're kind of falling in love and have a vested interest in things more than what we actually have the opportunity to hunt i mean you know that's viewing it from from the hunting community uh, more than other aspects of society but that's kind of where i've ended up after many years of thinking about it and i think as youngsters when you get into hunting it's fantastic to just be immersed in the whole thing and it's incredibly addictive to be out there in the pursuit of something but i think as i've got a bit older i've realized that the your investment in time and the care that you take has to be more than just those species those quarry species yeah i think that's really well said and you know it 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 brings me back to this idea of currency, right? Like in the hunting world, the long-standing currency has been a metric of, you know, antler score or or, or how large an animal was, um, or even how intense the hunt was, how crazy the adventure was. You know, those are the things you come back and tell your friends about. Those are the things that get published in the in the hunting magazines and and turned into films. Um, you know, in the outdoor industry, which is where I spend a lot of my time as well, working with outdoor brands um, outside of the hunting space. And in that world, you know, it's oftentimes how difficult was the climb? What's the rating? How high was the mountain? Um, how far was the run? You know, it's these metrics of endurance, these metrics of athleticism, these metrics of, of coal, you know, of size, like, you know, like I said, in the hunting space. But that currency is something that's propagated by the industry. It's something that's confirmed and accepted and celebrated by the community. If we want conservation to be valued, we, the people in these communities and the industry, the brands that are, that are steering the ship in these industries need to create value around conservation. If, Companies tell the hunting community and their ambassadors and athletes that, yes, we want you to go on these adventures and we want you to pursue these incredible animals and these wild landscapes, but we also want you to communicate conservation. We want you to talk about how your trip had a positive impact on the local communities and the local ecosystem. Then all of a sudden there is a there is a industry confirmed currency that the public and those people 
that are part of that community will work towards and adopt and value. And and that top-down, trickle-down effect, I believe, will change the landscape of conservation because if if all a, a climbing company cares about is how intense your climb was, how can we expect those climbers to care about the health and well-being of the ecosystems that these rocks exist in, right? You know, these parks and places weren't set aside, you know, Yosemite was not set aside for the for Half Dome to climb or El Cap to climb. It was set aside for a suite of other ecological aspects. And, you know, similarly, a lot of these national parks were set aside for clean water and forest reserves and a place for... Uh, you know, large populations of ungulates to continue grazing as they did centuries and millennia ago. Um, so we have to remember that, yeah, the conservation in its purest form was what drove a lot of the protection that we now enjoy, whether it's public land or our national park system and here in the States, um, and that the industry and I think the people need to remember that and work backwards and, and, and kind of place a new value on those conservation metrics yeah it's it's a really good point that uh, it was along very similar lines um a chap here in scotland called sam thompson who's uh he's a friend of ours and he's, he was actually the first podcast guest of 2018 he also gave one of the speeches a couple of weeks ago and which he did off the cuff amazingly i don't know how he managed to do it i, I can't give speeches off the cuff <laughs> but in his off the cuff speech he actually said uh, that one of the things that he wants to see <clears throat> to safeguard the future of of hunting for the long term is a revaluation of the way that uh, companies portray themselves within the hunting space. And he went on to the, the the analogy that he gave there. He says, "Why is it that we can't have an advert advertising a spotting scope or a pair of binoculars in a hunting magazine?" where the person sitting behind the spotting scope is an ecologist and they're looking at, you know, it can still be a, a quarry species. They're looking at bighorn sheep or uh, they're watching a, a black grouse lek in Scotland. And that's the advert that they're telling to sell the optics instead of somebody standing, maybe even sitting in a sort of grip and grin pose or in the kind of the example that you gave hanging off the side of a, a cliff because those are the kind of extreme adventures and, and environments that they want people to aspire to you know why can't that be the aspiration uh, and he made a great point there and it, it very much uh, echoes what you've just said yeah and i think it brings us back to hunting right the the definition of hunting is not the definition of killing and we think about you know my dad grew up deer hunting with his dad in Virginia. My dad never shot a deer when he was a kid. They would just, my grandfather was a forester who was obsessed with trees, you know, and they would just go walk Minnesota's North Woods or walk the hardwood forests of Virginia and just be out in the woods. And that was what my grandfather and my dad liked to do. And growing up, we hunted a lot. And yeah, we were able to harvest some things, but some of my best memories, like fishing, was just being out there and you know i know that the hunt and the harvest and hanging off the rock wall and climbing these epic mountains translates beautifully into photos and and like we talked about with these um 
charismatic species, like a photo of a panda and a, and a guy climbing an cap are very captivating images. Um, and they certainly have a very powerful uh, effect on inspiring people and, and kind of engaging with people. But like you're saying, there's something to be said for this reminder that, you know, if you were to call up your 10 closest friends who hunt, they probably have stories that, that they, that transformed them, events, experiences that transformed them that didn't include a harvest, you know, the hunts where you saw something happen, whether it was in the height of the elk rut and you saw some crazy battle go down, um, from afar or, or just witness something that, that, you know, kind of struck you. Like those are the moments. Those are the things that get us back out there the next day. You know, if hunting was easy, everybody would do it and it'd probably be called killing, but you know, we do it because it's so hard and we do it because we love the animal. I mean, this film we shot, um, Ben Masters and Adam Foss and I shot a few months ago was on desert bighorn sheep in West Texas. And one of the things that I, realized after that shoot and after now working on the edit with our team is that so many sheep hunters know that they will never have a chance to pursue or harvest a sheep, but they love the animals so much and they love the country that these animals call home. And they love the idea of this regal animal looking down on them from some crazy crag, you know, up on the mountains. And that's it. That's where the love comes from. You know, it's not, you go to these, these, um, sheep captures or these, you know, different kind of, um, conservation events. And it's filled with people who have, some of them have maybe pursued bighorns or, or maybe harvested them, but most of these people are just obsessed with them, you know, and that's it. And I think but that's they may, really they may thing. never draw a tag, right? They may never, and that's and that's fine with them, right? Like they identify with the animal for a, a suite of other reasons aside from how it looks on their wall. Um, and I think a lot of hunters would would tell you that they love elk or they love, you know, or fishermen would tell you they love trout or permit because of all of these things aside from how it feels in their hands and looks, you know, um, you know, on their plate. Um, there's this this love for the chase, the pursuit, the, the experience in the ecosystem that, you know, these animals call home, whether it's, you know, a, tr a stream in the, in the Intermountain West or the flats of Cuba, you know, or the mountains of Colorado, like people love those places. Yeah. I think that kind of thinking came home to me for the first time when I got uh, asked to sit on the fisheries trust for our local uh, water catchment essentially uh and i you know I, I love to fish mainly my passion is a, a wild brown trout preferably in rivers but the hill there's lots of hill locks in scotland and it can be fantastic fun there as well but i did a lot of salmon and sea trout fishing uh when i was younger a little bit less so now just mainly due to time but when i got asked to sit on the trust and then i was involved in discussing big projects either rerouting canalized rivers back to the, the formation that it used to be in the 1890s or uh, whether it's just removing obstructions from migratory fish is where I started to follow that kind of thinking where I was invested in it and intrigued by it because of a fascination of the species, even though I probably wasn't even going to really fish for them that much. 
Uh, and in some years, for time or whatever reason, I haven't even done it for Atlantic salmon in the last couple of years. But that doesn't change the fascination I have. And I'm when I walk the dog down at the river near where the office is here, I'm always looking for the first fish that I can spot in the known lies in the early part of the year. And it always brings a smile to my face. And Yeah, and that's, you know, I think that's why we all hunt and why we all fish. It's in that in that love for those places and those, those wild systems. Um, you know, before I ever harvested an elk, you know, last fall I was able to harvest my first elk with a bow on public land. And it was at 12 yards and it was just this totally 12 yards. Cra- That's awesome. 12 yards. Yeah. It was just like totally crazy, uh, experience. You know, Adam gave me a bow that spring, um, and it, you know, we, we, I've never worked harder for anything in my life and physically, um, and it, you know, we were lucky to connect with, with an animal, but before that season, before last fall, I had spent so many days, you know, we have tule elk back home in California. Uh, it's like a smaller subspecies that today, you know, there's some pretty interesting populations that live on the coast. Um, I spent so much time just out in the field watching them with binoculars, you know, and, and I guess that's what you do as a scientist, you know, an ecologist. But, you know, there are many species that I, I love, but I never intend to hunt. You know, for me personally, I want food in the freezer. And, and that's one of the big interests in hunting and harvesting an animal is, is having that, that food and, you know, all the experiences and, and kind of joys that come with that kind of pursuit but there's plenty of animals that i don't want to hunt and there's plenty of animals that in my eyes are are much better off being viewed through binoculars than a than a rangefinder um or a scope and i think that's the the amazing epic thing that we as hunters can do right we can decide what we want to hunt and the rest of it's just kind of icing on the cake like all the things you see when you're fly fishing, like an osprey or an eagle um, or, you know, a stag coming down to take a drink of water. I mean, that's that's the beauty in these wild ecosystems. And yes, you might connect with an animal that you're pursuing, but you might and likely will also have these other experiences that are that it's what, you know, that, that keep pulling us back outside. Yeah. Yeah. Very often it's those those experiences, the things which track alongside maybe your your original purpose for being in a particular location that actually make the experience what it is. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. And I think that's something that we, you know, today more than ever, kids don't have those opportunities to get outside, whether it's to hunt or fish or, or just hike or camp. And, you know, that's something that I think our, this next generation of, of youth are, are missing. And, you know, the outdoor industry and the hunting industry and the conservation, you know, community, I think, need to take a hard look at us. How can we get kids off their screens and outside? Because if this whole generation grows up more interested in their screens, then all of our conservation efforts will be for nothing because we're not going to have that community to... F- you know, to pick up the reins when, when we're gone, you know, these are generational, you know, kind of efforts. 
Yeah, they they have to. We have to have an interest in what is going on around us in order to be able to to make a difference in it. And what you say is right. If if that interest isn't there, if it is the exact opposite of that, if if it is a complete disinterest of what is happening in the environment around us, then yeah, we're gonna have we're gonna have some pretty serious problems going on into the future. You know, and it, and it brings me back to screens, right? We, you and I spend a lot of time on screens. It's <laughs> yeah. kind of like a, it's part of life today, right? Like whether you're using social media or reading emails or just kind of connected with people. Um, and there's certainly, I think, a, a balance and a bit of a dance there on how to do that sustain, sustain, sustainably and, and mindfully. Um, but we also have this amazing tool that our grandfathers and grandmothers didn't have, this tool that allows us to connect with people from across the globe, um, from across socioeconomic um, groups, and and communicate with people. And while the idea of spending all this time in front of a screen is kind of uh, you know upsetting and frustrating at times, and certainly keeps us from going outside, which we love to do. <laughs> the sun is shining right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm I'm sitting in in our uh, sound engineer Will Lake's audio booth so do you even have a window in the booth (laughs) not yet but i remember what it looked like before i got in (laughs) pouring rain Uh, spring yeah spring in montana is volatile at best you kind of get all four seasons in about 10 minutes so um, sounds a bit like scotland yeah yeah i'll bet keep us on our toes though builds character i'd like to think Uh, i think a, a pickup from this which ties in quite nicely to all the stuff that we've been talking about for the last 15 minutes or so is the position that you've now got with Sitka. Tell me about that and what you're going to be doing in that role. Yeah, no, it's an exciting role that um, that I feel super fortunate to, to be in. And, and that is working with the brand to develop and kind of execute this conservation, this environmentally minded strategy. And the strategy leans on on resources that the brand has to support conservation and, and and environmental efforts, efforts that tie into research and and different uh, restoration projects, and kind of bolsters the company's um, kind of footing in the conservation space. Right, like like we've talked about, there's this focus on these game species, but those species will only thrive if the ecosystems thrive. So working with them in that sense through this conservation fund that that Sitka has and also working with them um, on a kind of internal level to explore and develop uh, perspectives and stances on some of these topics, Um, whether it's management of certain species, hunting of certain species, and, and kind of their take um, on some of these topics, which we all know can be incredibly controversial, uh, in- incredibly divided. Um, and one of the things I'll be doing is just working with the company to kind of develop some of this language and some of these understandings. Um, another thing is working with them on content. You know, we, like I said, have the outdoor industry and the hunting industry as well have this uh, kind of currency of celebrating you know, the the climb, the tallest peak, the biggest animal, 
Um, but if if a brand like Sitco was to change that currency to push their consumers, their athletes and ambassadors to to value and talk about. I mean, you know, a lot of people already value conservation and, and value other things than the size of the antlers. But that's the story we hear because that's the story they they think and are told to share. But if the brands change that that equation and say, hey, look, do all that because that's amazing and, and very worthy of celebration and praise. But we'd also like to know more about the conservation uh, history of the place or or uh, individuals take on stewardship and what they're doing to give back to the systems that that sustain those animals they pursue so so I guess generally working with the brand to kind of develop some of these different um, pathways and avenues to celebrate support and expose conservation um, and the thing that I love about the brand is that the people there, are totally on board and totally get it and our, their hearts are already there. And I think it's just kind of plugging my nerdy ecology self into a lot of topics that I'm not an expert in. You know, I grew up hunting. I'm not the world's best hunter, but I'm totally stoked on exploring and developing that confluence where we can put ecology and conservation right in the same basket as um, as hunting and whether it's waterfowl or, or elk uh, or other uh, species. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a cool kind of budding program um, that I'm, I, I think is really going to kind of uh, change the narrative and push the needle in, in a really exciting uh, direction. Yeah, that, that is, that is going to be really exciting to see. And in a way it doesn't surprise me that it is um, sicker that are that are doing this because I think even historically they have been quite good even a long time ago back. Uh, if I look at, um, I think it was Searching for West, I think it was done with Mark Seacat. Right, yeah. And that was, I mean, that was a tremendous film. I mean, amazing, amazing production just from start to finish. But that was a story, okay? There wasn't much of a, there wasn't really a conservation thread in there. But it was about the story and the human interaction far more than it was actually about the hunt. Right. And, and they've made a, a number of films or and been involved in a few, uh, quite a few projects since then because I think that literally was like maybe even seven years ago. It was quite a long time ago. Uh, where there has been a focus outside of you know, the end result or the successful end result, uh, which is often seen as, you know, something on the ground. So that that's fantastic that they're taking it a step further, but further by bringing you on board. And I'm excited to see what that is going to look like. I, I know that I met uh, Brad uh, from Sitka um, in Germany a couple of months back, and he he, uh, he seems like a cool guy and very, very much of, of a similar mindset. Yeah, and in and, and two kind of... Uh complimentary notes is that you know Sitka and Yeti are both supporting this film that we've talked about on the podcast um, it's a film about desert bighorn sheep conservation there's no hunting it's strictly a story about an inspiring group of people in West Texas who are private landowners and 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 state biologists and volunteers who are singularly passionate about desert bighorn sheep conservation. And it's this just really rich, inspiring story um, that Sitka and, and also Yeti are supporting. Um, and it's awesome. There's, there's, there's not a harvest in the shot. Um, you know, and also along that same line of thought, 
Brad Christian, uh, who you just mentioned at, over at Sitka, he is going to be one of the guest editors of Modern Huntsman issue two alongside Ben O'Brien. Yeah. Um, and it's awesome though. Yeah, and it's it's just so cool because these are two those are two people who definitely have a place in the industry, uh, you know, being such kind of key leaders in these in these brands we all know and love. Um, but they also in their own right, you know, we know Ben through his podcast and his other work and and Brad as well, you know, are <laughs> you know, stewardship eco nerds who are creative and good storytellers and and have a really uh, brilliant perspective to share. So I'm really excited. You know, I think one of the kind of North stars of modern huntsman is to kind of address this, uh, this thing we're talking about, which is like, let's not be singularly focused on the trophy or the kill. Let's talk about these human stories, these ecosystem stories, these, these drivers that get us out there. Um, and issue two, you know, I don't want to, um, you know, reveal too much, but it, it's going to, you know, really share some incredible stories. And I think with Brad and Ben as co-guest editors, um, Tyler and I are going to have a heck of a good time uh, kind of putting this this next issue together. So, um, yeah. It's from what from what, from what what Tyler's told me and from what uh, I think, from what he mentioned in the, in the podcast when I, I asked him about, for, for especially for our listeners who have bought copies, what's in store. Uh, so he, he has he's already made the statement, so I'm not speaking out of turn in the last podcast, that it's going to be focused a lot around public lands. Right. Uh, it's it's going to be great. I mean, what a great... Uh, you know, it was the first uh, volume was was awesome and uh, such a break from the mold, and so many new great people are being brought on uh, to volume two that uh, you know it's just it's like it's going to be stepped up another level yet again. Yeah, for better for better or for worse, we have some big shoes to fill, but it's been it's been amazing to see you know the community kind of come together with our Kickstarter and. You know, I, I remember when when Tyler rolled through Bozeman, where I live now, and we had coffee together, and it was it was all this big kind of vision, right? We had briefs yeah. that that you know he was sharing with me, and we had these ideas and uh, you know these hopes and aspirations, and it's it's crazy, you know. They've I have so much um, respect and so much praise to to offer towards the kind of the founding partners of Modern Huntsman and and Tyler as editor in chief and. You know, I, I'm really honored to be uh, an editor uh, working by his side on this next issue. Um, it's an exciting, exciting time for sure to be kind of working on this these conservation topics. Yeah, it really is, and I said this to him. I can't remember whether I said this to him in the podcast that got that didn't save, or actually the one that managed to record. <laughs> uh, but the one thing that just I shouldn't have been surprised, but we did the podcast uh, with himself and Brad, different Brad to the one we've been talking about at Sitka, um, and this was their vision, and the Kickstarter was was up and running, and then I was like, bloody hell, they actually delivered it. When it arrived here at the office, and I had it in my hands, it's like, and I said this to him, I said, you, you delivered exactly what you promised, and more. And that doesn't actually when when the aspiration for something is so far removed from anything else that's out there, and it is just so different and breaking the mold by so far. It's very rare these days that 
it actually delivers and exceeds in any kind of project. But I think, you know, Modern Huntsman did that. And, you know, you're obviously a big part of that being uh, being guest editor. So I, I'm, uh, we're actually, we're going to be involved. You're, you're going to be editing some of my bad grammar because uh, <laughs> we're, we've got at least one article in the next one. So awesome. I, I'm excited. We're really excited to be part of it. And it's something that we, you know, we push loads and, uh, we mentioned this uh, on the podcast a lot because we're telling people you need to go and get your hands on it because we sell them through the shop here. But we have barely been able to keep up with the the orders here across in, into UK and Europe. That's awesome. It's been um, quite incredible the uptake and the amazing feedback that we've had. You know, I think that for all the kind of uh, you know, negative reflective conversation that we have, generally speaking, I don't think we've been too bad about that on this podcast. I think it's been, you know, generally very positive about how we can change and move forward into the future. But for all that kind of conversation that does get that, that does go on, I think, and I hope that I, I'm not speaking too early, but I almost feel like I can see the tide turning on, on the way that we portray ourselves as hunters. You know, I would agree. I think I think the the tide in general is turning. You know, we have so many reasons to redefine the way, whether we're hunters or outdoors people. Um, you know, we have so many reasons to redefine the way that we engage with the natural world. Um, you know, just one glance at any day's headlines will tell us about our changing planet, um, whether it's plastics in the ocean, uh, species declines, uh, the loss of our, our, our ice caps. Um, you know, there's a lot of things happening right now that I hope are, are kind of shaking people awake. You know, we live in a planet that we rely on and are also uh, molding in tremendous ways. And the, the negative ways in which we are changing the world, there is still time to to make progress and, and kind of pause and think about our interactions through a lens of, of uh, sustainability and through a lens of symbiosis, right? Like we need the planet. That's a fact um, and a healthy one at that. Um, so, you know, I think the Modern Huntsman team and I have been just over, you know, so stoked and so kind of overwhelmed by the positive feedback and the thirst for these stories and and this this appetite for for uh, the stewardship narrative. Um, I also, you know, again coming from the outdoor industry, which has been a big part of my life for a long time. Um, you know, there I would I would say there's also a really growing appetite and interest in those same stewardship narratives. There, you know, while we okay. do love a film. Um, like Maru that, that that oh man I watched that the other day right? what a film yeah and it's just it, it challenges everything we thought we knew about the the human mind and body and what the human was capable of and I mean the stories of you know Jimmy and, and Renan and and Conrad um, are incredible I mean absolutely incredible and Conrad's actually going to be marrying. Uh, Rachel and I in September, and he's a he's a close friend of of Rachel's family. And, really, yeah, that is crazy. Yeah, so it should be it should be cool. But you know, and I don't mean to take anything away from those people and their accomplishments because, gosh, I definitely would make it like ten feet off the deck to go on any <laughs> of those trips. Um, but 
Conrad's, you know, stepson, Al, uh, you know, Max Lowe and I and, and a great friend, uh, Forrest Woodward, made a film called Sky Migrations, which uh, was supported by by Mountain Hardware. And it's a film about conservation of raptors, uh, birds of prey. And I head down to Mountain Film tomorrow to for two premieres of our film there. And, you know, that's uh, an interesting situation because we kind of made this nerdy film um, you know, you can g- go on uh, the internet and find trailers for Sky Migrations. Uh, it's out there, probably be online in the next few months. But it's this nerdy film about scientists working to protect and study and conserve our raptors, which are indicators of ecosystem health, just like a wolf or a bear um, would be, or a trout in a freshwater system. And and it's been so uh, gratifying and, and fulfilling to hear and receive the feedback that we've been getting on that film. Um, you know, it, 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 it is it's such a different traditional outdoor film. It's, there's nothing, no crazy uh, physical feats that are documented. It, it's us just following the migratory path of, of a golden eagle as it flies from Nevada across America down into New Mexico. Um, so I truly Incredible. think that we are at this doorway where people are increasingly interested and excited about these narratives, these stewardship conservation narratives. So it's, it's, uh, it feels good. It's exciting. It's exciting to be at this time. It does feel sure. good. Yeah. It really, it really does. And uh, we, we get messages and, and I bump into people all the time, especially when we're at shows and the conversations that I'm having now are very different to the conversations I had with people five years ago. And they're, they're, you're right, there is an appetite for it. There is a thirst. And th- what things like what what we wanted to achieve, and I think we are achieving with this podcast, and what Modern Huntsman uh, aims to achieve, and, and Ben with his podcast, is to provide the knowledge base for those people who have a thirst to understand more and be more invested in the environment. And the, the one thing which I think we've been very poor at within, well, I, I can't speak for the outdoor space, but I think this is what you're getting at, but certainly within the, the hunting spaces, we've been very poor at have, making that information available for people to consume so that they can understand it better and participate in it if, it, you know, if it's something that grabs them. Absolutely. And also, you know, pointing out area for improvement and pointing yep. out ways that we can do better and be better. Just like you and Ben have kind of championed these questions of of is hunting by default a vehicle for conservation, you know. Sure, in a very kind of uh, sh- shallow sense, but there's so much more one can do to contribute to conservation. Likewise, in the outdoor industry, just because you're a hiker and not a hunter doesn't mean that you are a conservationist or a steward or, or frankly, doing anything positive for the outdoor space. Hiking may seem benign, but there are impacts there, whether it's the consumption of, of in the purchasing of, of products that have a that tax the environment, um, whether it's just the function of going off trail or, um, you know, driving to the trailhead, you know, there are impacts. And I think it's, it's a, it's a, it's a point I like to bring up because the outdoor industry 
leans on public access and the health of these systems, whether it's snow for the snow and ski or the snowboarding and skiing industry, or whether it's clean air or whether it's clean water for people who love to raft and kayak and fish, um, you know, or whether it's just healthy ecosystems that we're able to hike through, you know, like, again, these, these, these places, these parks, these public lands were not set aside because of an epic trail or a great place to take an Instagram photo. Um, these places were set <laughs> Sometimes as- you would think that. <laughs> you would think that. And I, and I would argue yeah. that a lot of people, uh, there's probably people who think Yosemite was set aside because it was so beautiful and that Ansel Adams took, <laughs> took great photos of it. And that it's a, it's like a, you know, a national park for photography, but, um, you know, that's just not the case. And, I think it's important to to remind people, you know, myself included, everyone. There's there's so much more we can be doing. Whether it's uh, it's avoiding single use plastics or straws, or participating in a, in a local beach cleanup, or volunteering with your local chapter of uh, the Bighorn Society uh, or Trout Unlimited. You know, there's there's so much we can do, and it's these are efforts that will be compounded over time. And also the best thing you can do is become a steward and then pass it on to a kid, your kid, uh, or a, a young person in your community. I mean, that's what we need. Yeah, it is. Interestingly, we've just, uh, they've just banned uh, plastic earbuds here with, with the little plastic shafts and they're oh, about yeah. to ban plastic, plastic drinking straws as well. It's amazing. I mean, uh, this month it seems there's been this kind of global... Um, awareness around plastics uh, for good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's striking. This, the current statistics say by 2050, there'll be more, at this rate, there'll be more plastic in the ocean than fish. Um, and that's scary. It's scary. I mean, I was in Kauai last week um, out in the Hawaiian Islands, and, you know, those islands are situated pretty close to the Pacific Garbage Patch, which is a an island of plastic <sighs> bigger than phenomenal. Texas. You know, and there's yeah. there's one in every ocean. There's there's one. There's this these patches of trash in every ocean, um, and you know, outline those single use plastics or you know, using a reusable water bottle. Those are those are things that make you as a hunter a, more of a steward. You know, bringing a metal water bottle out into the field when you hunt is a great way to to really adopt that idea of being a conservationist. Um, packing your own food, you know, um, just thinking about that net impact, um, not buying the season's newest gear every year. Um, do you need it? Do you need it? You know? Um, so anyway, there's, there's lots of things to do, but it's really cool to, you know, to be, be, uh, here in this moment in time. Uh, I mean, National Geographic, they sent out their latest issue in wrapped in paper. You know, ah, I haven't seen. Yeah. It hasn't arrived here yet. And it's, you know, the, ah. the issues is largely focused on plastics. Um, will that paper wrapping save the planet? No, but symbolically, it's, it's a beautiful step in the right direction, for sure. It is. It is. Yeah, it is. It's Just going back to what you were saying about uh, taking water bottles, which prompted me to something you actually said right near the beginning of the, the podcast, which was about clean clean water in North America, which I was slightly intrigued by because... I know that we're we're a bit spoiled with this in Scotland, but there isn't much of Scotland where I wouldn't be happy just to drink straight out the stream or straight out the river. 
because our, our water is very clean here. But obviously, this it must be a big enough issue in, in North America for you to have brought that up. Oh, yeah. I mean, water quality in North America um, has been impacted by a, a suite of, of, of land use effects, um, whether it's the conversion of landscapes into grazing lands, um, whether it's the exploration for, uh, you know, natural gas um, through, you know, fracking and things of that nature. Um, you know, we, humanity has done a pretty good job of of, of manipulating and, and kind of carving their signature into the earth in various ways. Um, I was going to say screwing it up. But. <laughs> yeah, no, certainly. And it's, you know, it's crazy. I was working on a film a few years ago down in South Texas uh, where you couldn't drink the water out of the tap because of all the fracking. Um, so it's kind of ironic because we couldn't drink the water. So... Oftentimes, people result to bottled water. There's there's communities across the United States where where water has been negatively impacted to such an extent that bottled water is the option. Bottled water, as we know, not only has the impact of plastics attributed to it, but water is this topic of tremendous injustice, whether it's poor communities losing access to drinking water because it's sold to companies, private companies. Um, you know, that's something that's taking place in Maui. That's something that's taking place across the West. Um, places where communities lose access to get drinking water because of, say, fracking, and then are forced to buy more expensive water from a private company. Um, also, they just released uh, reports about Corona buying water in in less than uh, moral ways from lower uh, income communities in parts of Mexico and and that's some, in corona the the beer the beer oh. you know yeah. and it's kind of like this whole idea that once you start to peel back the onion there are so many things that you will learn that will surprise you and that will force you to question your impact in, in your decisions and the impacts of your decisions. And it goes back to, you know, being able to harvest an animal and putting 200 pounds of meat in your freezer. I know where the animal came from. I know it came from a wild place, from a healthy place. And the carbon footprint of buying 200 pounds of meat from the market is so much greater than the footprint of harvesting an animal and putting it in your freezer. And that's just, I mean, obviously my life has tremendous impacts on the, on the planet in negative ways just by function of being here, but that feels good. It feels good to know that through the harvest of that animal that I can consciously reduce my impact in that way. And, and same with bringing taking responsibility. Yeah, taking responsibility. Yeah. And, and, and again, just being you know, learning and being open to to changing if there's better ways to do something. Hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that phrase that you said a few minutes ago. Peeling back the onion. I, I think <laughs> <laughs> I think that's gonna have to be b- b- written into an article somewhere. Peeling back the onion. I like that. Yeah. Though peeling so, an onion, the, la- is not the that complexity fun. layer. Yeah. <laughs> it should be more like what's a more uh, maybe like peeling the apple or something. A little little less. Uh, 
threatening onion my eyes well, i don't know like... <laughs> I, I i i liked it because an onion's got all these layers this yeah. sort of layers of complexity underneath it maybe you weren't thinking quite that deep but that's what i was thinking as you were talking <laughs> about that yeah i know you're right in onions fact you have the layers yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what is um what is in store for, oh no hang on i've just realized there was something i wanted to ask you too many i had a whole heap of things written down here <laughs> when you were talking about your um your film where you you were monitoring the eagles something and you may not have the the knowledge to hand for this i i i have no idea so you you can tell me if it's something we need to pick up another time uh, but one of the things that uh, has, comes up quite a bit here they do a lot of monitoring of raptors in the uk some of it um quite controversially um there is uh a lot of raptor conflicts, some of which may be legitimate, a lot of which conclusions are drawn to disappearance of raptors is often blamed on various aspects of the hunting community. But the one thing that has come up uh, a lot recently is whether the the tracking of a lot of the, especially the bigger birds, like your, like your golden eagles, is actually having a detrimental effect on those particular animals. I'm thinking like pictures I've seen recently of transmi- transmitters which have slung round underneath the, the bird's wing. And I don't know if there are any studies that you're aware of in North America, where I know they do a lot of monitoring there as well, where that has been investigated. Yeah, you know, I, I haven't read the reports that have come from the, the UK and Europe, but having worked on a number of projects that include uh, different devices to collect data from organisms. Um, what I do know is that the the scrutiny of these managing agencies, perhaps in the case of the United States, you know, fish and wildlife or state agencies, are such that incredible detail is paid to the potential impacts of these uh, devices um, on the target species. So is it possible that an animal could be negatively impacted by a collar or a band or um, you know a geolocator on a bird? Certainly. Does that ha- happen often? No, because if it did, the government would, in my opinion, mitigate that. And there are so many loopholes and so many standards in place that keep the health and well-being of the target species in mind. Um, You know, scientists are in the business of collecting data. If an animal dies with your collar or with your geolocator, it's a a net loss for everybody involved. Um, You know, that's not something that we, the scientific scientific community want also that costs those things cost a lot of money and there's less and less resources for the scientific community every year and the last thing we want is to waste a bunch of money and and perhaps kill an animal that i can assure you these researchers are are totally um uh you know passionate about you know i was just filming a project last week with another outdoor brand on, a, on actually a gal in Idaho who studies golden eagles. And to, to spend a day in the field with these people and really understand how much they love these species, it, it's just, it's, um, it's so inspiring. So to answer your question, you know, I do think there is a possibility of an animal being negatively impacted, but I mean, less than 1%, I would bet. And, and, and generally these, um, devices, um, you know, are only approved because they have little or no impact on the species. 
Um, mm. So that would be that's interesting. Yeah, that mm. would be my take on it. Yeah, you know, it's it's sometimes I I like level headed discussion because I think that's how we move forward, and I think quite often these things are, are polarized. Uh, both with within the hunting community and and very much outside as well, l- looking back in to suit the agenda that you're striving for, uh, and there always tends to be a, a little element of truth in there. But sometimes it's just blown up a little bit more than it is maybe the full truth. So it, it's just interesting to hear different um, perspectives from different parts of the world and how it's done there and what the perception is. It doesn't necessarily mean that it. Uh, is the same in other parts of the world, but it's good to have those kind of open discussions. Absolutely, you know, and and I don't I don't want to dive into it because it could be a whole another podcast in and of itself. But <laughs> you know, if people, I'm sure people have heard of this whole, um, you know, wolves reintroduced to Yellowstone, and by a function of that introduction, uh, the elk left the riparian corridors, the aspens regenerated, the songbirds and and pollinators came back, the beavers came back healed the rivers and you had this like really beautiful simple top-down effect and and that's just not the case if you read the science papers and you read the the reports authored by those researchers they are grossly overgeneralized uh or the the i'm sorry the media reporting on that science is grossly overgeneralized and fails to acknowledge the unknowns and the difference between Yellowstone and any piece of land outside Yellowstone. And I don't say that because I want to take the wind out of conservationist sails. Wolves are important, yes. Wolves have a very vital role in the ecosystem. They should be managed and valued and looked at as an as a, as a important part of that, that web of life. But it's just a classic example of the media spinning a story because it suited them and it was sexy and attractive and and I fell for it you know for years it was something that that I thought was to was true and it wasn't up until this year when I really started reading the science papers and asking um, people much more informed than I on the topic about this science that I have learned and feel really confident in this understanding that it's actually a little bit more complicated than what it seems to be. And I think that's, you know, a important kind of uh, reminder that nature is complicated and Scotland is different than parts of England and certainly those places are different than Sweden and Norway. And to make these generalizations about Northern Europe, um, you know, is just not, not, uh, you know, not supported by the science. If you go out and, and actually read the science papers, um, these systems yeah, and, are. And that kind of goes. It kind of goes back to what you were saying near the start, which was that a lot of the science is often there, but it's not necessarily disseminated in a way that's consumable for people to understand. So those papers that you're talking about were there at the same time as all of the sort of very generalized media hype, but it didn't mean that they were necessarily accessible. Um, to the the average man on the man and woman on the street, I think the one, the film that and it's been quite a few years to be fair since I actually watched it, but I think it's on YouTube um, that was made on the topic was and you might be able to correct me is it how how wolves change rivers or I forget the title but I know the film and it's a film I watched many times um, yeah that does a really great job of painting that simple picture um, yeah 
But for those of you who are listening who are interested, if you go on the internet and just search New York Times op-ed um, by uh, what was the the author's names Arthur Middleton. Um, Arthur Middleton, New York Times op-ed, he was one of the principal scientists doing that research, and he writes this really smart op-ed about the misinterpretation, the unknowns, and the question marks that remain that uh, would challenge that simple narrative. Um, so that's a that's a great reference for anybody who's interested. Um, I'm going to look that up as well. Because it's something I've been interested to uh, sort of understand in a fuller context yeah and i think this that this is a it's a good opportunity for me to ask you one of my my two last questions for this podcast because i think we're just going to have to have you on again or actually in person <laughs> we're going to get That'd you over awesome. this year i think we need. <laughs> so my, my my second last question is uh for people who do want to understand just a little bit more where would you point them where are there online journals which are just maybe a bit more academic but consumable is there a couple of places that you could give me to pass on to, to the listeners that where they can find great information absolutely you know um google scholar if you really want to get heady and dive into the science papers it's a great uh place platform where public free journal articles are made available and you can search keywords like wolves, Yellowstone or beavers, Scotland, and you can, um, you can find papers there. One thing that, that I always do is look for how many times the paper has been cited. You, you know, it's a, generally it'll, it'll pull you towards papers that have been very, um, kind of luminary and have really kind of, uh, you know, been establishing papers, landmark papers in, in, in their particular fields. Um, another, uh, another place you can go is, you know, even just looking at National Geographic's homepage, you know, they do a pretty good job of bringing up some interesting topics. Um, another Escape is a, is a publication that's out of the UK. They publish some really interesting stories, kind of natural history stories, um, B-Side Magazine, which is out of Canada. They publish some really interesting stories. Um, you know, on social media, you can follow uh, groups like Pacific Wild or Sea Legacy or Paul Nicklin. Um, they do really good, you know, reporting and storytelling. Um, selfishly, check you know, check out my work. Yeah, Charles posts on Instagram. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. You know, I, I'm constantly kind of like nerding yeah, out on your weird topics. <laughs> your Instagram posts, posts are like small essays. Oh my. I, I, I'm always learning something new when I read them. I, I feel like I, I, I probably write, <laughs> write too much, but I love writing. So it's, um, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, there's a guy named Phil Torres, who's a scientist out there who does really cool work. Um, on on insects and he's another scientist um i'm trying to think what else uh, manga bay is another website um that you can you can look up uh that has really cool kind of environmental news from across the globe i personally wake up every morning and read the front page of the new york times science section um on just to kind of do a quick scan over over the news um Biogeographic is another really great publication that that uh, publishes really interesting stories. Um, that's you know available online. 
Um, well, I, th- I think people have uh, they've got a lot of reading out of them now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or PBS. So that- I mean, in the states we have PBS, which those documentaries that are available in public uh, do a really good job of, of uh, you know peeling back some of the layers and, and telling these these natural history stories. Peeling um, back the onion. <laughs> yeah, peeling back the onion. <laughs> that could be the title of our next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and just lastly, what apart from what you, I mean, you, you've kind of given us an, an insight already. But is there anything that you haven't talked about that's kind of in store for you in the next twelve months that you're particularly excited about? Definitely, Trips or anything like that. Yeah, you know, um, a project that we are just diving into. Uh, which will be a, a pretty interesting one is a film I'm making with uh, I'm co-directing with Ben Masters again uh, you know a, a good friend and and the DP uh, uh, a filmmaker named Phil Baraboo who shot uh, Charged the story of Ed Garcia uh, you know another kind my brother of, just watched that yeah. I haven't watched it yet but he said it was incredible incredible and and Phil was kind of the the genius behind that you know Ed. Is uh, Ed Garcia is uh, another local guy in our community, somebody who's definitely a, a hero in, in my mind. Um, so Phil, Ben, and I are making – and Phil and Ben made Unbranded, which if you all haven't seen it, it's on it's Netflix. Tremendous. Um, yeah. We're making a film about the impacts of wild horses um, on native ecosystems, uh, which will be a big undertaking. It's an incredibly divided emotional topic. Um, actually Will Lake, who's our sound ninja, who's making all this audio come to life. He's working with us on that as well. Um, so that's, that should be a a pretty interesting film, um, that I hope shines a light on this topic, which is that, and without diving too far into it, you know, wild horses are feral livestock. They went extinct with the saber toothed tiger and the American cheetah. The horses that we see today in North America were reintroduced with the Spanish, and yes, they have a place on our rangelands, in my opinion, because they're a part of the American legacy and and they're protected with the uh, Wild Horse and Burrow Act, but to to not manage these animals because we are because we, the public, are so blinded by emotion and our love for horses and our love for the idea of horses is a huge error that is having incredible negative impacts on our ecosystems and the native plants and animals that call these places home. And the this emotional kind of paralysis has prevented the federal government from effectively managing these populations, which are growing out of control and beyond a point of stability where you're having horses dying over grazing, um, running out of water and, and, and being forced to be fed and watered by volunteers and federal agencies, which is just not right. You know, we need to manage them like everything else, like cattle, like cattle are managed. Horses are not managed. There is no rancher agency who is able to take these animals off the landscape in a sustainable way. Many of them are put into holding pens, which are so full of animals, they are have far out they far exceeded the adoption rate that there are thousands of wild horses living in in 
basically pens, federally funded pens for the rest of their life, which is not a good life. And it's not sustainable. And it's if people truly care about wild horses and the places they call home, things need to be different. So this film aims to profile these horses' impacts on uh, native landscapes, uh, or sorry, native species and the ecosystems that sustain them. Um, so that is a big undertaking and absolutely fascinating. I've heard, I've heard you talk about it a little bit before and I'm, I, I can't wait to see that because it, it's uh it's a really interesting story. It's a story that I knew nothing about. And, and I think it also embraces something which is so true and, and transferable outside of this particular issue, which is how, our emotions drive really bad decisions. And and it's not just for wild horses. It drives really bad decisions with regard to wildlife around the world. And we need to find a way to get past that where uh, logic and reason and the good of not not just the individual, but the species as a whole and the environment that they inhabit is actually what takes precedence. Absolutely. And I think for us, you know, the North Star for this film will be objective reporting. Um, So we want to tell the story as it is and uh, be, uh, you know, unwavered by emotions or by politics or even our personal views. You know, we really want the intention is for us to get on the ground and report what's happening, report on what's happening. Um, So we Phil's already started shooting some of this. Uh, You know, we have some content um, kind of already stored away but you know the bulk of the film will be shot in july out in nevada so um, that's something we're kind of ramping up uh you know to get ready for and um yeah looking forward to sharing more with you all next time you and i sit down which is hopefully in scotland (laughs) i i hope so it's been fascinating having you on i know we had a chance to speak on the phone for I don't know what it was, 20 or 30 minutes, a month or two back. And I knew that the conversation was going to bounce sort of all over the place. But I think it's the kind of conversation that our podcast listeners love because they really they don't know exactly where it's going to get, uh, exactly where it's going to go. And I've I've learned a lot from speaking to you today. And I'm sure that the, the, the people listening to the podcast will have learned something. So thank you very much for your time today, Charles. And I, I really do hope that we will see you here uh, sooner rather than later. And I think if Tyler has anything to do with it, you will, you probably will be here this year. <laughs> I hope so. And, and thank you so much for reaching out. It's always uh, it's a treat to talk with people who are as informed and smart and curious as yourself. And I uh, well, I don't know if I can claim <laughs> it as in, as informed, but certainly curious. Yeah. Oh well, it's uh, it's been a treat, and I, I'm really looking forward to continuing the concert. The uh, gosh, I keep saying conservation instead of conversation. But uh, it's probably not a bad thing. <laughs> it's on thing. the mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm looking yeah, forward to uh, getting up there. And, and thanks again. And if yeah, and if people out there listening or want to learn more about uh, all the kind of uh, nerdy science things I'm thinking about, thinking about and working on, uh, you can go to my website. It's charlespost.com or Instagram's charles underscore post. Um, yep. But yeah, we thank will you. Um, We'll fire, that, fire those links in the bio and... Uh, yeah, uh, stick some. I'll uh, steal some pictures of you from you uh, to stick up when this podcast goes out as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's it's been a real pleasure, and uh, looking forward to getting up in your neck of the woods here soon. Great. Looking forward to it as well. Thanks, All Charles. Right. Take care. 
And that's it for this week's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Uh, like I said in the, the intro to the, the show, um, I hadn't actually listened to it when we first recorded the intro. And obviously now I've listened to it, now I've edited it, and I really enjoyed it. Charles is a super cool guy. And if you want to check out more of his stuff, I definitely suggest you head over to his Instagram. He's very active on it. It's a super cool, uh, super cool guy. and It's a really good page. And uh, I'm not sure if he's actually got a Facebook page, but it doesn't matter. Instagram is the, is the way forward anyway. If you don't have Instagram, get on it. It's it's way better. It's just nice pictures. doesn't have all the clutter of Facebook. Honestly, if we could shut down our Facebook pages and we didn't need it for work, then we probably would because we would, we would love to move away from it. Or if someone comes up with a better alternative, that would be, that would be a good idea. I'm not sure, maybe Facebook's too much of a giant that no one, no one could actually uh, compete against them. Anyway, moving on, the competition winner from the for the pair of tickets for the GWCT Game Fair, uh, all you had to do was post a picture of your dog or your companion that you're going to take with you to the Game Fair. There was loads and loads of entries, so thank you to everyone that entered. Um, the pictures was not actually selected by me, it was selected by someone else uh, to keep it fair because I know a few of the people on it. Uh, and the winner that was picked out was Eleanor Mitchell. So well done. And it, the picture was your dog with a pair of sunglasses. It was quite a, quite a funny picture. Um, so get in contact with us. Pace, pace, pace. Sorry, I'm totally messing up the email address there. Podcast at paceproductionsuk.com, uh, or just shoot us an email on Facebook or Instagram and let us know, and uh, we'll sort out those tickets for you. In other news, Modern Huntsman is now available in the US, which means that we are currently getting our latest shipment in, sent across. We've just placed the order today. So if you have made a pre-order, which loads of you have, you will be get you'll be in the next shipment. And if you have not placed a pre-order already, there I think is only about three or four copies left in this latest shipment coming. Uh, and yeah, if, if you basically, if you don't put in, if you're not the next four people uh, putting in a pre-order, then you'll have to wait for the next shipment. For the guys that have um, asked for theirs to be signed, yours is coming not in this shipment, but basically straight after. So it's like the week after. So we're basically just waiting for them to actually be signed. Um, we just need to get the right people uh, to sign it for you. So yours is coming as well. And so the good news is they're printed, they're being signed, and they'll be here probably a week or two after the next shipment comes in. So yeah, thanks to the guys that that pre-ordered and asked for the signed copies. Uh, we won't be doing any more signed copies uh, because uh, it's quite a lot of work to to get it done. But thank you to everyone that ordered. Uh, I think right now we actually, I think it's Father's Day coming up. There's actually a promo code, and I think it's on the Instagram page and on the Facebook page. Just go and check them out, and uh, there's I think 10% off t-shirts and mugs right now. Uh, thanks to everyone that's been ordering the coffee as well. Coffee, we've actually had to get another load roasted. Um, even more than before actually because the game fest coming up and uh, it's sell sold really well at the um, at the northern shooting show so we just want to make sure we've got enough and in exciting news is that we're actually in the process of trying out some new coffee to bring out uh, a new line of coffee so it takes a little bit of time and we had so many requests for tea as well we're actually looking into maybe getting some tea done uh, but that, that'll take a little bit of time we're, we're tea drinkers as well so uh, we would love to be able to bring some tea to you as well. Uh, and we were talking at the start of the show about the, the honeybees. 
Um, I wasn't involved in that because I was actually collecting uh, two hives at the time. And my my actual hive of honeybees is arriving in one week's time. So that will be me starting my beekeeping journey. So, um, yeah, thanks to everyone that has actually sent messages uh, telling me that you're beekeepers, um, helping me out. There's been a few people sending me books. Um, I appreciate all of it. It's It's wicked. Thank you very much. And I'm super excited to crack on with this i've been wanting to do it for so long so thank you very much well i'm gonna leave you to it for now because uh, i think i've gone on a little bit too much but join us again in two weeks time where byron will be back from new zealand and i'm not 100 sure what the next podcast is going to be but i'm pretty sure it might be something from new zealand which will be quite cool because it'll be uh, straight after his uh, trip out there Don't forget that this podcast is available on most podcasting platforms, uh, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, uh, the list list goes on. Uh, Just type in podcast into the wilderness onto any of the apps and it will come up. If you need any more details about us or about the shows, about the shop, then just go on all the W's, thepacebrothers.com. Everything is on there. Well, I will see you again in two weeks' time. 